So Money episode 766, Srinivas Rao, author of An Audience of One and host of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Say, what if we all just stop trying to be our best? <laughs> what if we just stop trying to achieve, 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 and climb the ladder? Stop trying to get like that corner office and the title and whatever. I mean, what if we believe that true success existed outside of, quote unquote, being the best. Welcome back to So Money, everybody. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Our guest today is going to blow our minds. So I hope you're ready. His name is Srinivas Rao, and he is an author, a speaker, and podcast host of the hugely popular podcast called The Unmistakable Creative. Maybe you're already a subscriber. He's interviewed over 600 creatives, thought leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and rebels. Srini believes that being unmistakable in your creativity is actually far better than being the best at what you do. So we got to obviously talk about that. What does that mean? Unmistakable creative. We'll talk about his upcoming third book, An Audience of One, and why he believes there's a very big difference with what we want to do for a living and what we want to do with our lives. Yeah. Deep stuff. Good stuff. Here we go. Srinivas Rao. Srinivas Rao, welcome to So Money. It's a pleasure to finally connect with you. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me here. It's a pleasure to connect you with you as well. And you go by Srini, right? So I can call you Srini? You can absolutely call me Srini. That's what uh, I think everybody calls me. And, and so, yeah, I, I kind of wonder at this point if people who listen to me actually even know my full name. <laughs> well, we we do now. So many listeners, we, we are excited to learn from you. You are on a book tour right now with your third book launch, uh, An Audience of One, which I was telling you earlier, I really appreciate the message and I want to dive into that with you. Um, we, we should also mention you're a, a very popular, well-respected podcast host. Unmistakable Creative is your podcast. And going back to even before the podcast, you were somebody who maybe like 15 years ago, 10 years ago was on a different trajectory, right? You definitely did more than one or two pivots. And it was a combination of recession and just kind of figuring more out about who you are and what you want out of life as opposed to just your career. So take us back to that place. I always like to go back to sort of the beginning-ish yeah. of people's kind of aha moment, pre-pivot. Um, uh, I understand you like had the MBA, you know, Berkeley on the resume, yeah. but it was the recession. And so in some ways you had to make a change out of necessity. Yeah. So I had to make a change out of both necessity and to call it a pivot would uh, assume that it was uh, entirely deliberate choice. But despite Berkeley on the resume and an MBA from Pepperdine, what didn't uh, come out and what you may not have found, or maybe you did in your research is my pivot is the result of the fact that I had been fired from just about every real job that I had ever had. 
Uh, I, re- I read that, but um, I was and, hoping you would bring it up. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, I can take you back to that. So I got out of Berkeley at almost as bad a time as when I got out of uh, business school. So I got out of Berkeley December 2000. So if you remember uh, at that time, uh, the, the three or four years prior was dot the first dot-com yeah. boom. And the way I described it was if you were at Berkeley during that time, it was like watching the greatest party in the history of the world happening across the Bay in San Francisco. And when you got there, it was over. Uh, so I had this really bad job working in inside sales, uh, fresh out of college, got fired from that job and then got fired from another job. And then I got fired from another, I I think the third job I actually didn't get fired from, but I left before I was about to be fired. And there's only one job that I ever actually quit. And ironically, I'm going to be back in the building uh, where that company was uh, doing an interview uh, with Chase Jarvis, which is really kind of surreal. But uh, then I got to business school and I ended up graduating April 2009. So if you combine both those both times graduating into recession and getting fired from every every job you've ever had, that's not a pivot. That's you really screwed up <laughs> or uh, you've got to start making some different choices. And in my mind, I thought, OK, I've ended up here at age 30. If I want to end up somewhere different by 40, I've got to make radically different choices, many of which will be questioned, many of which will be unpopular, and many of which will require sacrifices that people in their 30s uh, usually don't make or should be embarrassed about making, like living at your parents' house for a really long time. Uh, and that meant giving up a lot of a, a lot of different things. Uh, for example, the ability to start a family and to do all the things that many of my friends had done. So what most people had done in their 20s, I used my entire 30s to do, to build a career, to get to, to this place. And it's still not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. I was having this really interesting conversation with uh, a writer named Danny Shapiro yesterday. And we we're talking about the fact that when you build a career in the arts, when you have a life that is, a, a, you have a career, creative career or a life that is creative, it is inherently uncertain. It doesn't have an outline. <clears throat> it's not like going to medical school or law school or, or business school for that matter, where you are given a, a, a set of steps to follow. And based on following the steps, you'll achieve a particular outcome. Getting to do creative work for a living doesn't work that way. There are no guarantees. There's no guarantee if you're patient. There's no guarantee if you're persistent. Uh, uh, this is what I said in the, the first self, self-published book was that art that rewards its creator long after the average person quits is admired, but it's rarely encouraged. And particularly in the culture that I grew up in. And so I, I think that that is something that really has to be taken into mind. So fast forward to where we are now. 2009, I started a blog. The blog uh, led to the podcast. It started out literally as a, a weekly interview series on my blog called interviews with up and coming bloggers, uh, was then subsequently spun out into a site called blogcast FM, which was the podcast for bloggers. And then 2013, we gutted the whole brand and rebranded it as unmistakable creative, where we interview bank robbers and drug dealers and <laughs> performance psychologists and billionaires and everybody you could possibly think of. Unmistakable is a key word. What, define that for us in the, yeah. in the context of creativity. Yeah, absolutely. So I define un- something being unmistakable as something so distinctive that nobody else could have made it but you. It's immediately recognized as your work. You don't even have to put your signature on it. And 
if that's the case, then you really have no competition. And the example that I think is is the most sort of uh, exemplary of this is uh, my friend Mars Dorian, who's the visual artist who does a lot of our artwork at Unmistakable Creative. He doesn't do our album covers, but a good amount of the brand was based on his visual insight uh, with my ideas. And he told me uh, it's probably four or five years ago that one of his goals with his work was that he wanted it to be so unique and so distinctive that when it rolled through your Facebook newsfeed or when you saw it anywhere, you could take one look at it and you could say, that's a Mars Dorian piece. He doesn't even have to put his name on it. That's unmistakable. Hmm. That's quite the aspiration. And I think one of your pieces of advice is as you are developing your, um, you know, your creative channels is to actually have sort of the, the uh, I want to use your words, like a tribe of adversaries or Am I getting it right? Um, basically, a group of people who uh, will tell you will will kind of be like the opposition, which is good because it informs you of like sort of how to continue being different. Yeah, I, I think that the the desire to please everybody as as a uh, recipe for mediocrity as well as obscurity, uh, particularly in a world where we're. Uh, competing with a great deal of noise. Everybody has a platform. Everybody has the ability to broadcast their ideas. Uh, we are all effectively media companies to some degree. Mm -hmm. And that being the case, if you're trying to cater to the lowest common denominator, that is a losing battle. Uh, so I think that, yes, you absolutely need people who disagree with you. I think team that, of rivals, right? Is that what it is? Yeah. Yes. Well, I think that the worst thing that somebody could be to your work is indifferent. If they hate it, that's not a bad thing. That means you've realized who you're not for. And, and I've noticed this pretty consistently with book reviews. Uh, I make it a point very rarely to read my book reviews, especially after I read this review. Uh, so that's the first self-published book through a series of freakish coincidences became a Wall Street Journal bestseller. Uh, and I remember the first few days I would go and look at the reviews. And then I went and looked at one of the two-star reviews. And this is the only review of any of my books that I can quote to you by memory. This woman said, I hope this guy is a better surfer than he is a writer. <laughs> and there have been hundreds of five-star reviews, yeah. and that is the only one that I remember by memory, and that is the one that I always reference when people ask me about book reviews. So I think that it's important that your work is, is polarizing to some degree because mm -hmm. when you're polarizing, it becomes very clear that you are – not catering to the audience, that you are not willing to let somebody else's opinion dictate your values. You're also hitting a nerve. You're saying something that is potentially Absolutely. controversial and nobody wants to talk about something that everyone agrees with because that's not really interesting. <laughs> exactly. Um, okay, we I, all I, agree. Next, you know. Yeah, I've realized even when I come across things online that piss me off, I almost always have to take a moment and say, you know what, this pisses me off because it hit a nerve. There's something about this that's a reflection on me and what I'm dealing yeah. with, not just on the person who wrote this. So in audi an audience of one, in an audience of one, which is now your third book, congratulations. Uh, what, you know, I think as an, I've also published and I feel like every time you come up with a book idea, it's a real process. and the idea you actually end up publishing is not what you ended up initially thinking it was going <laughs> yeah. to be. So uh, how did you arrive at the ultimately uh, an audience this, of one? So uh, was to, it like to, an audience of three? And then you're like, no, I think it's more like one. <laughs> uh, no, I, I think what, what, uh, what really happened was the, the funny thing about this book is that we didn't even have a title for the overwhelming majority of the process of writing it, uh, which was really strange. The Google doc basically just said book two. Uh, and so every day we're writing, but the, this genesis of this idea was based on, uh, this piece that I wrote for medium where I wrote about this idea that writing a thousand words a day had changed my life. And that 
piece ended up going viral. That was the piece that ultimately led to a book deal two years after it was published. But the thing that was interesting was that I developed this habit and at a certain point, it stopped being about having this habit specifically to get things done. The reason it started in the first place was because of the fact that I had uh, suddenly the, the demands on my content production went up. I was advising a startup where I was doing content for them. I was writing content for my own newsletter and I was also doing freelance writing for this website called Search Engine Journal. And I knew that there was no way that I could count on something unreliable like inspiration to hit all of those no it hit basically demand you know meet all those demands so somebody named Julian Smith who's a, a blogger and author and now a founder of a venture funded startup called breather turned me on to this habit and he said I write a thousand words every day well Julian Smith also had one of the most popular blogs on the entire internet at that time and had written uh, a New York Times best-selling book so I thought okay this guy writes a thousand words a day he has achieved something that I want to achieve so let me try it and eventually it led to all these different things but at a certain point it stopped being this thing that uh, was an item on a to-do list and it became something that I looked forward to every single morning. And it's something that I still do to this day. I, I've jokingly said the only two reasons to avoid that ritual are sex or surfing. And those are valid reasons <laughs> in my mind. Uh, so what do you write about? Anything that comes to your mind or is there actually... It comes to my mind. And, and what's interesting about this process is that I think subjects tend to reveal themselves uh, as you actually go through the process of writing. And we have this really beautiful animated short uh, where my friend Sarah Peck uh, describes us. If you do a search for Sarah Peck Unmistakable, we, we partnered with the Soul Pancake team to produce an animated short based on her episode. And it's really funny because she describes this process in such eloquent and vivid detail where she says sometimes she basically is just whining on the page, writing coffee, coffee, coffee like three times. I, I think the, the key is really just to get your hands moving. And what ends up happening is three, 400, 500 words into it, uh, an insight suddenly sparks. Because what happens is when you're focused on one thing for an extended period of time, you move into what uh, Stephen Kotler and many of the, the people who've done this work call a flow state. And from there, you not only achieve significant increases in productivity, but suddenly creative insights come in flurries because you're focused entirely on this one thing. So if I'm writing an article, for example, in the morning, I might start off with just absolute nonsense. I get to 500 words and within 30 minutes, I've written another 1400 words and it's taken less time. It's more eloquent and it actually is something that I can use. So I think the, the part of this process that's interesting to me is that I, my joke is that I very rarely write anything worth reading. I just write a lot. Uh, and some of it ends up being worth reading. And I, I think that I'm not alone in this. If you look at people who are professional creatives, they create on a schedule. And they create on a schedule because of the fact that if you create on a schedule, it liberates you from the pressure to be good with what you do every single time you sit down. Because that's a tall order to think, hey, every time I sit down, I'm going to write the next great American novel or the next piece of content that's going to go viral on the Internet. Whereas if you're consistent about it, it doesn't matter if today sucked because you'll be back tomorrow. security fortune 500 companies use they need to know police are going to be on the scene immediately this is exactly the kind of security you get with simply safe if there's a break-in they use real video evidence to give police an eyewitness account of the crime and that means police dispatch up to 350 percent faster than for a normal burglar alarm with simply safe you get comprehensive protection for your home outdoor cameras and doorbells alert you to anyone approaching your house 
Entry motion and glass break sensors guard inside. Plus, Simply Safe protects your home from fires, water damage, carbon monoxide poisoning, and it's all monitored 24-7 by live security professionals. You can set it up yourself with no tools needed, or they can do it for you, and it's only 50 cents a day with no contracts. Visit simplysafe.com slash so money. You'll get free shipping and a 60 day risk free trial. Be sure you go to simplysafe.com slash so money so they know our show sent you. That's simplysafe.com slash so money. That just inspired me. So I'm, I'm doing these stand up comedy classes at night as just a, a delineation of my, the order of my life or the disorder of my life at this point <laughs> as a mom of two and business owner. But it's been really fun. But, you know, trying to find time to write jokes, it's on my to do list. It's, it's actually r- bullet point write jokes. Uh, it's hard. And then so I'm usually like writing on the subway on the way to class. And like, of course, genius does not ensue when you're on the A train. Um, or maybe sometimes it does, uh, but you just inspired me. I'm going to just like get up every morning and write for 10 minutes and like nine times out of 10, it's going to be unusable stuff. But then that one great joke is going to probably happen. Exactly. And and I'm glad you mentioned 10 minutes because I think that's the place where most people go wrong is they try to write a thousand words a day when they've never done this in their life. And that's why I always encourage them to get into the habit of doing it first. Uh, you basically, you can increase the scope, uh, as you get better at it and more consistent. Let's talk money a little bit. Um, sure. how, how often does money come up in your in your conversations uh, with your guests as as far as the, the ways that they uh, what as far as what what's important to them or what's influenced them or what's holding them back? Yeah. Quite frequently, actually. Uh, it's a question that I ask a lot, I think, personally, because I grew up with uh, a pretty challenging story about money because of the fact that my dad is a college professor. But while I was growing up, he was primarily doing postdoctoral work. So often I got denied a lot of things that my sister got with ease. She got to go on trips to Europe while she was in high school. When she needed $100 jeans, there was no question that this is what you need in order to be cool. When I needed them, my dad said, you're out of your mind. And I got made fun of in seventh grade for not having nice clothes, which seventh graders are idiots anyways. What do they know? Uh, all these things are insignificant when you get older. But the thing is that they do have an impact on the way that you think about money and the choices that you make. Uh, it's not that I don't value money. I like nice things and it's nice to have money. Money makes life a lot easier. It gives you choices. We can't really neglect that. It is kind of, uh, I, I love what Zig Ziglar said about it. He said, you really don't notice uh, a lack of money. Money is like oxygen until you're deprived of it. You don't notice its absence. Uh, but it definitely comes up with a lot of people. And it's interesting to hear how people's story about money and, and how they define success changes with age and, and how that changes with time. I think that if you're lucky enough to make money doing what you love and do the things that you want to do, for me, that list is actually really minimal. Uh, I want to be able to surf and snowboard because those are my two biggest passions. I want to see my friends and I want to do creative work for a living. I think that often the thing that happens in this I got from one of our guests was that we don't really understand the essence of our goals. We don't understand why we want the thing that we do. It's an arbitrary uh, decision because of the fact that it is a socially programmed decision. So we put billionaires on the covers of magazines and place celebrities on pedestals. So that becomes a standard by which we measure our success by, uh, even though maybe you don't need a billion dollars. I certainly don't need a billion dollars to snowboard and surf as much as I want and to keep writing books. 
so it, it's it's kind of an interesting uh, topic, and I, I think we're we're at probably one of the most interesting times we've ever been in when it comes to money, because of the fact that there are so many changes being made with technology that are going to fundamentally change how we work. And I only know this because I've, I've been doing a deep dive into all sorts of tools that are AI based. And some of the things that I've seen in the last week have blown my mind in terms of not only the jobs they're going to eliminate, but the power that they're going to give every individual to do things at scale like never before. A uh, perfect example is SEO is now basically being driven almost entirely by AI because of the fact that SEO, when you think about it, is really almost all data analysis driven. So suddenly this thing that you needed a, a $100,000 a year employee for is in the hands of an individual like myself who can go in and optimize content without it being this incredibly technically difficult thing. And that's going to fundamentally change how we deal with money. Uh, in fact, I'm going to be interviewing a, a 2020 presidential candidate who is running on the platform of universal basic income because of the fact that there's a real danger that we are headed to the point where this is not going to be an option, but a necessity. Hmm. Who is this person? Uh, his name is Andrew Yang. Oh, uh, yeah. They the founder of Manhattan GMAT. Yeah. Should I interview him? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I think it'd be, I'd, I'd be really interested to hear what your your own listeners have to say. I wanted to talk to him because I saw his book in the store and I, I read it. Uh, I, I think there are numerous things that are interesting about his story. So when I choose people to interview, my default filter is, am I curious about this person? That's it. Uh, it doesn't matter if they're famous, doesn't matter if they're rich, doesn't matter if they have a million followers. That's how you end up with bank robbers and drug dealers as your guests. Uh, <laughs> so it's always, you know, does this person's story rivet me in some way? And I just, I remember getting his book. I, I happened to be in a Barnes and Noble. I saw his book and I picked it up and I thought, okay. And I took a picture I sent him a tweet. And I said, okay, I want to talk to you. Uh, I think it, the, there are so many places that you could go with this conversation with him because of the fact that he's an Asian American running for president. I, I, I wonder what are the challenges that he's going to face. Because, I mean, if it took us 50 years to get to a black president, then, you know, how realistic is it? Uh, and I'm saying this as an Indian American, how realistic is it that we're going to put an Asian American in the White House? Like that is a that's not an unreal thing that this guy's going to have to deal with. And I really want to ask him about it. Like, how are you how are you going to navigate that complexity? Right. Hmm. Oh, boy. Yeah. So I'm going to look back and uh, see about getting him on the show. Thank you for sharing that. Well, let's go back a little bit more to your childhood. I want to learn more background on uh, on how you were raised and, and the financial influences that you had. One of our sponsors, our, our headline sponsor, <clears throat> Chase Slate, has done this study looking at conversations that families have with their children around money. And so I always want to ask guests, what is a conversation or kind of significant impact that your parents had on you when it came to money. We already shared the story about your dad um, mm. and your sister and the differences, but was there ever like a talk that they had with you or a lesson learned that was very intentional? No. I think the that actually is probably one of the more unfortunate things that my parents didn't have the foresight to do was to instill a sense of financial literacy in, in me uh, when I was younger, because I think that as a result of not having that uh, I made a lot of bad decisions when I was young. So my first job was working at McDonald's when I was in high school. And I didn't have the insight to think, you know what, let me put just a tiny chunk of this away every week and I'll have a lot of it after 10 years. Even if it had been $20, $25 a week uh, that I would not have missed. And that simple insight was never passed on to me. Uh, I think that the other thing that that I think I saw was that that we made choices based not on how to create wealth, but rather how to survive and how to uh, 
basically ensure that you got security and stability. Because my dad is, a, a for all intents and purposes, is a government employee. He's a college professor. And particularly in the system that he's in, uh, in the University of California, the retirement benefits are insane. You basically get the 90% of your salary for the rest of your life if you're a tenured professor. Uh, so that I think really is, is a very different world than the one that I'm living in. Uh, and I'm in this really bizarre sort of generation of not millennial, but kind of right in between. Plus you add on top of that graduating into two recessions, you could not have planned something to go that wrong. Uh, in terms of, of your, your adult life, inevitably that leads to some major financial challenges. Uh, but I, I think the things that weren't talked about are, are more important here. And I, I feel that money is one of those things that we should be teaching in school and we don't. I think that every person in high school and for that matter, college, it, it's ironic. People go to colleges like Berkeley. There are dozens of classes about accounting and finance. People get MBAs and there's not a single class about personal finance. Nope. Well, part of it is because I think no one knows how to teach it. And mm -hmm. there are studies that show that just learning about it in school is not really going to make a difference, really. Sure. Because how, what, I learned a lot of things in school. I, I don't remember anything um, other than, you know, the relationships I had and how school made me feel. Uh -huh. Absolutely. <laughs> um, you know, I'm exaggerating, but I think that they're kind of wondering like, what's the ROI really? Cause if this is not going to, but I think there's a, a, there, that doesn't mean we should abandon the topic altogether. We need to get more creative and thoughtful about how we do bring it to the classroom, because I do think that's the perfect incubator place to kind of bring it in. Because, you know, if it's not happening at home, it's got to happen somewhere because our society depends on it. Absolutely. Yeah. It's one of those. Exactly. I mean, it's one of those things that you, you really, you're right. I mean, it, it does have to be taught somewhere. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's uh, discuss, given that you have also experienced two huge recessions at pivotal, pivotal times in your career and life, where are you right now as far as your mindset around money, uh, how you think about spending it, saving it? Are you risk averse as a result of, you know, seeing two big market downturns? Um, I'm not risk averse as much as I am deliberate about my choices on what I will spend money on. Uh, I'm very intentional about what I choose to spend my money on. It's funny because I would say if you look at even my apartment, the overwhelming majority of things that take up space are books. Uh, so books, travel, surfing and snowboarding kind of are where my money goes. Uh, so I wouldn't say that I'm risk averse per se, but I am more mindful than I, I was in the past. Uh, I think that, like I said, I, I've been fortunate in, in having these conversations with all these people that have really kind of helped me have a different understanding of it. Uh, I think the, the thing that you look at when you've built a creative career is you think to yourself, okay, well, I don't have the 401k, the pension plan or the retirement benefits that my dad has. I'm staking my future on my mind effectively. Uh, but the upside of that, uh, I think Michael Ellsberg, uh, uh, my friend who wrote the, the book called the last save investment, he said, one of the greatest ways to extend your earning potential is to extend your working life. And when you don't have the guarantee of, of retirement or you happen to have a creative career like I do, you have that capability to extend your working life. I don't really like the idea of sitting around retiring and writing is something I can do when I'm 90 years old. Yeah, maybe you're not writing. Maybe you're you're speaking it into your artificial intelligent. Yeah, exactly. Tech device that would that's a. Have there been books written about like stop what you're doing because it's not going to be relevant in ten years because <laughs> it'll well, be replaced by AI. 
so it's you would be so you know I I was uh, in last year about last year at this time AI was really clunky it wasn't quite working perfectly some of the things I've seen in the last week um, I I just downloaded an app and I don't remember the name of it I'll, I'll find it for you and you can include it to your listeners it's an app for using in meetings and. Not only does it capture the entire transcript of the meetings, it basically uses context to create to-do lists and give everybody reminders. Like literally, if you and I had a conversation, a meeting, and we had all these things we talked about that we were going to do, the app apparently will basically send you an entire um, recap with the recommended to-dos for each person. That's that, insane. That threatens all interns everywhere. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <gasps> what will interns do? They can always go back to getting your coffee, I guess. Srini, thank you so much. This has been a lively conversation to say the least. I would love to stay in touch and we're going to reference everything that you have been putting out in the world, all the good stuff, including the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. Everybody go subscribe. You've interviewed everybody from Simon Sinek to Ryan Holiday, Seth Godin. You're latest book, An Audience of One, recently came out. And uh, you even talk about how Oprah inadvertently used this strategy you talk about. Uh, do you know Oprah? Um, I don't. <laughs> but I'm sure she would love what you have to say because she kind of practiced what you're preaching. And as a result, we, she's Oprah. So it, it works. Thank you so much. And hoping you have a, a great rest of your summer. Yeah, thank you. To learn more about Srini Rao, please visit unmistakablecreative.com. You can also follow him on Instagram at unmistakablecreative and on Twitter at unmistakablecr. The book again is called An Audience of One. If you missed any of this, don't worry. Head over to somoneypodcast.com. You can download the transcript and the audio and all the links that we've mentioned. If you'd like to leave a question for our Friday Ask Farnoosh sessions, please do so. Click on Ask Farnoosh and either type in your question or leave me an audio voicemail. I always love hearing your voice. So I encourage you to take advantage of that tool. But also if you're a fan of Instagram and you're following me on Instagram, don't be shy. Let me know there what you're question is about money, career, kids, everything in between. I love getting all sorts of questions. No question is too outrageous for me. I will try to tackle everything. That's my promise to you. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. And I hope your day is so money. Money.